Welcome to the Huntback Country Podcast. Today, this is a Monday Minute episode where we typically answer your listener questions. This is Mark, and I'm normally joined by Steve, but today I am running solo. And this Monday Minute is a follow-up to the podcast I did somewhat recently about my custom rifle build. That was episode number 370. If you guys want to go back and listen to that, um, if you haven't already before, we dive into some of the Q&A today. So all the questions today are things that um, were sent in after that podcast and kind of follow-up questions about that rifle in particular and some rifle-related topics. Um, I just got back from Alaska from my mountain goat hunt, which was a wild adventure, and we'll tell that story soon on the podcast. Um, But this Monday Minute... It's just pretty quick and informal. Um, I'm still literally unpacking and getting things together to head out on my next hunt and a little bit of chaos, but wanted to answer these questions for you guys. So in no certain order, I'm just going to dive in. One of the most popular questions that came in after that rifle podcast was about the total cost of the rifle. Uh, one example would be Brian who wrote in and said, thanks for the great article and podcast about your custom rifle build. Based on loosely rallying up the parts, it seems like your cost for components was perhaps around $3,000, not counting glass. Would you mind sharing how much you are in for total for this rifle? And again, Brian asked this, but several others did. In the article and in the podcast, I mentioned, quote, thousands of dollars a few times. The reason I didn't put a specific price tag on the rifle is because my situation was a bit unique in the sense that I didn't just go to my rifle builder, uh, which was Sterling Precision, and say, hey, here's what I want. What can you guys do? What's the total cost going to be? I had started already sourcing components for the rifle build before I knew exactly what I was building or who was going to build it. Um, And some of those I paid just full retail, normal, direct from um, people like, uh, I just drew a blank on the name. Anyway, some of the retailers. Um, And then some I do through XO. You know, it's pretty standard um, to have access at some point um, for some companies to like an industry type discount. So there was certain items that I purchased direct from companies with a bit of a discount. So what I paid may not be what you would actually pay on the street, but Um, I do have a good chunk of change invested in this. And again, many of these items I did pay full price for. So I will say um, to answer Brian's question, he said cost for components, not including glass. Um, I did some quick math. It would definitely be between three and $4,000 for all the components without um, optics, uh, meaning the scope or without, in my unique case, the suppressor as well. So Um, In general, you know, if you look at full-on custom builds um, from Sterling Precision or different builders of a a similar level of of quality, you are looking at, you know, $5,000 or more, um, depending on exactly what you spec out. So, you know, when you talk about a custom rifle, it's certainly not cheap. I will say on the flip side of that, um, and I mentioned this in the prior article and podcast, like you could... You could upgrade a factory rifle over time. I would just encourage you if you're 
wanting to do that to be aware of what your end result is because you may not actually save money in the long run. So if you were to do what I've done previously and say start with a Tika, but then swap the barrel and do a stock and have some custom work done and some coatings and this and that and the other thing, like depending on how far down that road you go, you may be better off just full on custom from the beginning. Not always the case, but certainly can be the case. So um, none of your rifle certainly needs to cost thousands of dollars talked about that but if you want to do something unique and full-on custom high-end that's what you're looking at for budget next question was from marcus and it was about spotting impacts um he said for the past couple of months i've been planning on putting a putting together a rifle for myself researching different options components and manufacturers Interestingly, the final product I've been envisioning is pretty much identical to your rifle with the XLR chassis, proof barrel, etc. Um, he goes on to talk about, with my, with my lightweight setup, can I spot my own impacts, i.e. is the muzzle rise limited? He was looking to build a 280 Ackley improved as his cartridge, which he says he believes is somewhat similar to my 7 Som in terms of energy. And yes, Marcus, they're very, very similar. Um, and then Marcus goes on, to just, goes on to say he lives in California, so a suppressor is not an option, and he is considering using a muzzle brake to mitigate recoil. In general, when it comes to lightweight, relatively lightweight rifles and spotting impacts and total recoil that you're feeling and muzzle rise, there's no short answer here um, in terms of like at one point he asked, can I spot impacts? And I would say yes, sometimes. Um, there's just so many variables. The rifle setup itself is one of them. Um, the total weight of the rifle, the cartridge you're shooting, even what bullet weight perhaps within a cartridge, um, what muzzle device, if any, are you using, such as a suppressor, muzzle breaker, nothing. But what guys also overlook is um your your control of recoil and your body position has a dramatic effect on on muzzle rise and on spotting impacts and then obviously associated with that is the distance at which you're trying to spot impacts so you know if if i'm prone I can spot impacts at a closer range than if I'm, say, kneeling and in some sort of awkward position where I may not be as stable and I'm not am able to control or absorb the recoil as well. So I, I don't want to necessarily put numbers on it because, again, it's, it's even going to matter to the person, not only in the rifle build and the cartridge, which I mentioned, but on your your position and performance behind the rifle is going to matter a great deal so i don't there's no easy answer to say yeah if you shoot a 280 ackley improved with you know an eight pound total rifle you will be able to spot impacts at 300 yards or greater there's just no magic formula for that there's so many variables to consider um and again i think the biggest one that gets overlooked is your ability to handle manage and control recoil based on your position and your technique so no easy answer there um speeds and effective range was a topic that came up 
one guy wrote in and said, I'm curious what velocities you are getting with a 22 inch barrel and your seven SOM and what your max range with the rifle is for those loads. At some point you mentioned changing to an 18 inch barrel. How much velocity loss do you think there would be? And how would that impact your maximum range? He goes on to say, I own nothing in seven millimeter cartridge family, but I'm beginning to see the benefits of certain seven millimeter cartridges. And this podcast has piqued my interest to take the plunge into the world of seven millimeter. So, um, speed's an effective range. I can give you, you know, some broad options here. Again, this is with my 22 inch barrel and my seven SOM. The, the muzzle velocities that I'm getting are anywhere from basically 2,900 to 3,150 at the very high end. And the reason that those vary so greatly is if I'm shooting a cup and core bullet in say the 175 um, class weight range, such as a 175 ELDX, I'm going to be right at about 2,900 feet per second at the muzzle. Um, a 168 VLD, for example, I run at 2,940. Um, a 160 grain Acubond or partition, I run at about 2,950, 2,960. And then those faster speeds would come from some of the lighter mono metal, mono metal bullets I've shot. So like 155 grain Hammer Hunter runs a little over 3000 and then a 143 grain hammer hunter uh, i run at 3150. i will say for all of those those speeds aren't necessarily the top end speeds that i can run those bullets those are the speeds at which i've developed loads for a combination of speed accuracy and consistency um, if you're into reloading things like a low extreme spread and standard deviation. So those are, um, if you're familiar with the term, those are nodes at which I'm running those bullets. There's not the top end speed necessarily. Um, the 160 grain Acubond is a perfect example. I can run it much faster, um, than like the mid 2900s. Um, but there's such a great node at that range that that's where I ran it. So it works great. So again, broadly, 22 inch barrel, seven SOM, I would say in general, call it 2,900 to 3,000, some higher, some lower. I would anticipate going down to an 18 inch barrel, so reducing four inches of barrel length. We'll see. Um, People have formulas out there of like, oh, if you chop every inch, it's going to lose 25 feet per second or 40 feet per second, etc. Again, no easy answers here because it's going to depend on the cartridge. Cartridges are going to behave differently at different barrel lengths. It's going to depend on the barrel itself. Some barrels tend to be faster, or slower. Uh, it's going to depend on if you're reloading the load development you use and how you optimize your powder burn rate choices for that shorter barrel. So there's a lot of variables to consider, but I would say I would anticipate losing 100 to 150 feet per second for a particular bullet. So instead of shooting, call it 2,900 to 2,950 on average, I would say I'd be closer to 2,800, for example, if I were to go to an 18-inch barrel. In terms of effective range, um, 
with, and this is with all the speeds that I mentioned for the bullets prior and the thing to keep in mind with effective range is how do you choose to measure that and at what environmental variables. So to standardize things, if I were to say I'm shooting at 5,000 feet elevation, um, you know, 40, 40 degree temps with kind of a standard pressure humidity, I'll give you some numbers. Again, this is for 5,000 feet elevation. The effective range for everything I mentioned, the hammer hunters, acubons, partitions, VLDs, ELDX, et cetera, like across the board is basically going to range from, um, from 700 yards to a little over a thousand yards. And the way that I'm getting that number is just picking a baseline for a minimum expansion velocity of 1800 feet per second. So how far can that bullet run at those environmentals at those speeds that I mentioned and still maintain 1800 feet per second down range? Different bullets will have a different minimum expansion velocity. So some, you know, maybe capable of expanding at a lower speed than that, but 1800 feet per second is a good average um, velocity to consider for expansion. So if you want to determine maximum effective range with that metric, that's how I'm getting these numbers. I'm not saying that that's the only way to do it or it's the best way to do it, but this is to give you guys some ideas for numbers. So again, basically 700 yards to over a thousand yards. The reason you see that 300 yard gap is obviously the difference in speed and BC. So a perfect example would be even though 143 grain hammer hunter monometal bullet is starting much faster at 31 feet per or 3150 feet per second at the muzzle compared to a 175 grain ELDX, which is only starting about 2,900 feet per second, um, a fair amount slower. The higher BC of that ELDX gives it more downrange, long-term retained velocity. So it's not starting as fast, but it's maintaining velocity much longer than the Hammer Hunter, which has a much lower BC ballistic coefficient. So those two are kind of like at the opposite end of clearly the weight spectrum, 143 gains versus 175, but also the BC spectrum. And therefore, um, that 1800 feet per second expansion velocity is going to be 725 yards for the 143 grain hammer hunter versus over a thousand. That's like a thousand twenty-five yards for that 175 grain ELDX. So pretty big spread there. I mean, 300 yards, um, difference. That said, does that matter? I certainly don't plan on shooting at any animals at a thousand yards, um, or really even 700 for that matter. So perfect example of it's easy to like, oh, chase BC, chase BC, and then go, ah, does it matter? Yeah, maybe, no. I mean, yes, you're getting further downrange capability. That's one thing. The other thing to keep in mind with BC that also gives you is wind drift. So an example to highlight that is say at 600 yards, the um the drift in inches wind drift with a 10 mile an hour wind between those two uh 90 degree 10 mile an hour wind by the way is almost a 10 inch difference so it's 600 yards maybe you consider yourself yeah i want to build a 600 yard gun like i'm i practice enough i'm i want to shoot out 600 yards like as you find out wins the variable as you extend distance 
10 inches of drift difference is quite a bit. Doesn't mean that the LDX is a better bullet for every situation. It's just something to keep in mind when you're talking about BC, for example. So I hope that it gives you some examples of speeds and maximum effective range for my setup. Long story short is the maximum effective range for my 7 SOM is well beyond what I want to shoot animals at. And even when I go to an 18 inch barrel in loose speed, depending on my bullet choice, I still will have a maximum effective range that is, again, beyond what I plan on shooting animals at. All right. Rush wrote in and had some questions about short barrels. He said, I'm a big fan of the podcast, really enjoyed the recent one where you went over your custom build. Could you elaborate on using shorter barrels if you intend to shoot suppressed? I've always been a seven millimeter rim mac guy and I'm looking at a custom build. I had intended to get a 24 inch barrel, but I'm planning to make the jump to shooting suppressed. I wanted to know if there are other reasons beyond excess length to go shorter if you were planning on a suppressor. Do you think barrel length plays that big of a role in accuracy and bullet stabilization relative to rate of twist? Also, he asked, do you have a favorite site for selling a lightly used gear? To my point of using the unneeded gear to sell and fund the needed. Uh, that last one first, selling lightly used gear, it depends what it is. If it's rifle and firearms related, you may have more strict restrictions. If it's hunting gear stuff in general that may not be as restricted, you're going to have more options. But um, forums like Rock Slide are good. Um, the Long Range Hunting Forum is a good one for firearms related stuff. Again, keep legalities in mind here. Um, there's a lot of Facebook groups. I just don't personally do Facebook, but I know a lot of guys do. Um, yeah, so those are some options to look at there. In terms of short barrels, um, in particular when shooting suppressed, I will say that length is the biggest reason I shoot short barrels. And going back to the previous question, having a shorter barrel doesn't handicap me for my needs. So if I don't plan on needing the highest speeds possible to have a max effective range at well beyond a thousand yards, why do I need a long barrel? Um, why do I, why would I want a long barrel if I'm not shooting suppressed? Like once you just go to a shorter, more compact package, you realize how handy it is. And for me, it's just that it's primarily the packability of having a shorter barrel in general, whether you do or don't run a suppressor. Um, keep in mind with, you know, mentioning max effective range, again, that's talking about minimum expansion velocity. That doesn't mean, for example, that say that hammer hunter, I mentioned that minimum expansion velocity is 700 yards. That doesn't mean I can't shoot that on steel beyond 700 yards. That's that 700 yard. This number is talking about terminal performance on game. So you can have a short barrel, shorter speeds, and maybe you're, maximum terminal performance for the bullet you choose is only six or 700 yards. doesn't mean you can't go out and have fun and shoot steel at a thousand, for example, just keep that in mind. So to his question, the length and the reason I go short is primarily to reduce the length and to make it more portable. He talks about, is there a big role of barrel length in terms of accuracy and bullet stabilization relative to rate of twist? No. Uh, I mean, it depends how analytical you want to get here and how theoretical versus practical. Like you can make some points that shorter or longer barrels have some benefit in terms of accuracy and stabilization. Mostly 
theoretical arguments and not even theoretical. I mean, there can be some real effects here, but just not enough of effect to matter to you as a shooter and a hunter for most of us. So um, I'm generally a fan of shorter barrels and faster twist rates, to put it plainly. Um, For seven millimeter, like my seven SOM is a one in 8.4 twist. Uh, The 18 inch barrel that I will eventually move to is a one in eight twist. Um, I'm fine with the one in 8.4, but that was the barrel I got was a one in eight. That was what was available. Um, Even on a six, five Creedmoor, like I have, for example, it went a little bit faster than normal. Um, There's definitely the possibility to overspin or over twist a bullet. Um, But in general, I prefer a shorter barrel and a faster twist. All right. So this is uh, this next one from Chris is a long question, but something that, again, I've seen come up a fair amount. And at the end of the day, he's asking about ballistics for different conditions and different locations, and then specifically pairing that with a CDS turret, which is like um, mostly Leupold is specific is probably what he's talking about here, um, a custom dial. So instead of having your dial for elevation be in MOA or in mills, you can have a custom dial turret, which you're dialing specifically for yardage. So instead of saying, I'm going to dial to um, 4.25 MOA, your dial would say dial to 450 yards. And it knows what that yardage is because you have given Leupold in this case information on your ballistics. So what what bullet am I shooting? Um, you know, what twist rate is my rifle? What's my velocity? But a big factor here can be also what we talked about with that atmospherics and primarily elevation. So for someone like myself, and this is what Chris was asking about, I may be hunting at, you know, 400 feet elevation in Missouri. Um, I was just in Alaska and I think I killed my mountain goat at, oh, spoiler alert, I killed a mountain goat um, at... 3750 and I may kill an elk next week at 8,000, right? So there's a big discrepancy between 400 feet, 4,000 feet and 8,000 feet potentially. So for me, because I do hunt in a lot of different places, I don't like the custom dial system. It is, um, it's limiting in terms of both your location and atmospheric conditions. But again, keep in mind that a custom dial is also tied in very specifically to a bullet and velocity. That's great if you don't hunt a lot of different places and if you don't use a variety of ammunition. So if you're always shooting like, hey, here's what I shoot. I shoot factory ammo. Um, I shoot a, a seven rim mag with the same ELDX bullet all the time and I'm always within the same elevation range, plus or minus, you know, 2,000 feet or whatever on either end, maybe a custom dial system is going to work. I've had them in the past. I just found them to be limiting when my location, my conditions, or my rifle setup changed slightly. Those custom dials became irrelevant, basically. So he's asking about those. I would say that they're not bad. They can just be limiting depending on what you're doing to um the alternative to that is he has some options he was talking about you know keeping an moa or mill turret 
and just running a basically like a dope chart for the area he's headed into. I think that's a great way to go. Um, the even better way to go, if you can, is get a rangefinder with um, atmospherics that has sensors. So um, I run a SIG rangefinder, for example, that when I range, it gives me yardage, but it also gives me a calculated MOA. And then I'm just always dialing to that MOA. That MOA is going to change based on the yardage, yes, but also because the rangefinder has sensors to know what are the atmospherics. So if I'm ranging something at 400 yards at 400 feet elevation, it's going to give me one MOA holdover. But if I'm ranging something at 400 yards at 8,000 feet elevation, it's going to give me the actual MOA holdover for those conditions. I think that's currently the ideal if, again, you hunt in a lot of different conditions, as I do. CDS, custom dial system, turret is great, again, if you have those simple parameters. If you can't do either custom dial or rangefinder with sensors, I would recommend what he asked about, which is run the numbers ahead of time in a ballistic app, anticipate the elevation you will be at roughly, the temperature, the other variables. And this is what I used to do is just literally print out, okay, I'm headed to Wyoming for an elk hunt. I anticipate to hunt between six and 8,000 feet, uh, roughly these temperatures, etc. Like plug that in in the ballistics calculator, print that out, um, tape it to your rifle stock, um, save it to your phone. Like one quick tip is save it to your phone, like as your wallpaper or your, even your lock screen. I've done this before. So literally I've been able to hand my phone to somebody I'm with and I range and I'm like, okay, it's, you know, 375 yards and they can look at my phone without unlocking it, without doing anything. And all my data is right there. So that's an, an option. Um, the other one, um, other question that came up a little bit about was about being cross-eyed dominant and shooting left-handed. Um, so again, for me, I don't know what my problem is. I've mixed wires. I've always been this way, but I do certain things right-handed, certain things left-handed. Um, and I, uh, have always shot left-handed, but never had a left-handed rifle, um, up until semi recent history. So I do, um, I do recommend if you can to shoot a rifle on the side of your dominant eye. So if you're left eye dominant, shoot left-handed essentially. Um, again, with a rifle, I still shoot a pistol cross dominant, meaning I shoot a pistol right-handed and use my left eye, which is, you know, gets weird and that's a whole separate issue. Um, I shoot same for a bow. I shoot a bow left-handed and I'm left eye dominant. I feel like for those situations, it just works best for me to go with my dominant eye with a rifle and with a bow. Um, but figure it out. I certainly know some people who shoot across the side from their dominant eye and they make it work for them. Um, it's hard to say there. Like, if you can, do some experimenting. Uh, Matt wrote in and asked, why did I go with Hawkins rings and the anti-X action, which... Again, the anti-X, X specifically, is the integrated Picatinny rail. And he said that it would have been cheaper and lighter 
if I would have gone with the anti action, which is no pick rail, um, and tally rings. Um, yeah, it could have been cheaper and lighter. Um, I went with the anti X again, in my grand scheme of things, I sourced that action before our, I hundred percent knew what I was building, what scope I was going to run, even what rings I was going to run. And I'm generally not a fan of adding rails to a rifle if they're not required, meaning I would generally prefer to mount rings direct to an action without adding a rail in between. But with the anti-X action, it's an integral rail. So there's no failure point. You don't have a rail bolted to an action and then rings bolted to a rail. You have an integral rail um, and then rings mounted directly to the rail. So it reduces the failure point there. Um, and then the benefits of a rail versus the anti non X, the non integrated rail, the rail just gives you a little bit um, more versatility on scope mounting. So you're going to have more options to move rings forward and backwards and set eye relief as you need it or want it. Whereas when you have the anti without the rail, you have fixed position. Um, for your rings to mount to and just you lose a little bit of flexibility. Sometimes that's not a big deal depending on the scope that you're using. Um, so if your scope tube has enough length where instead of moving your rings forward and back, you can move the scope itself forward and back within the rings, you may be fine. Um, the NXS Compact is a good example. It's a short, compact scope. There's not much room to use the scope tube to fine tune alignment um, or eye relief. So being able to use the Picatinny rail and set rings at slightly different positions allowed me to um, set that scope where I wanted it to be, if that makes sense. So I can't answer his question too directly to say, why did I do this, not do that? Because again, when I sourced and started to build off that action, I wasn't sure exactly what my end result was going to be. So I didn't, he, he threw out the hypothetical, why did you do the anti-X and Hawkins, not an anti-Entali? And I would say, I can't say this versus that because I didn't face that particular question, if that makes sense. Um, Mark wrote in and asked about the other scopes I mentioned in the article and also the total weight of my build. He said, have you experienced any failures with the other three scope make or models that you mentioned? Which again, those three scopes were the Leupold VX5, the um, Zeiss V4, and the R Vortex Razor LHT. Um, I didn't experience any failures, no. Um, I had some issues, uh, you can call this a failure, um, potentially. I had some issues where I don't feel like one of those scopes necessarily held zero incredibly well. I mean, I just felt like it was kind of wandering a little bit. I felt like my zero was shifting. Um, and again, keep in mind some of this, if you're facing like the issues, maybe it's not scope, like maybe it's you, maybe it's position, maybe it's whatever, but once I had enough experience and comfort with using that scope on a particular rifle and felt like, okay, I don't think this is me like having a different zero on a different day because head position or because of technique or anything like that. Like I feel like it's the scope, you know, shifting a little bit. Um, that made me question my confidence on that scope. Um, 
one of the scopes I had, it was had some illumination and the illumination, I don't want to say malfunctioned, but it, it kind of bled out and was illuminating an area of the scope that wasn't meant to be illuminated. Um, so again, I didn't have failures per se, but I had some like call it consistency or quality issues that weren't necessarily deal breakers, but at the same time also weren't confidence inspiring. I will say that again, I'm just coming off this mountain goat hunt. I was really glad I had a scope that was very durable. I'm not saying the other scopes wouldn't have made it, but I will say that this was a very tough hunt. I fell (laughs) uh, quite a few times. We'll put it that way. My rifle is scuffed, scarred, beat up, dinged. It was just very rough, rugged, steep, loose, wet, slippery country. And I fell a lot and, you know, spent 99% of the time with my rifle on my pack and it took some falls and I had much more confidence in the night force scope than I would have been more concerned if I had one of the other ones. I'll put it that way. Um, and he asked about the overall weight of my current configuration. Um, I think this was in the article, but is also easy to look over because there's a lot of information in the article. The total weight of my rifle in the current configuration is basically nine pounds. And that is like ready to hunt. That's with the scope, with a suppressor, with ammunition, etc. Um, you know, rifle weights, one of those things kind of like pack weight. It's, you can throw around numbers, but it's like, how are you calculating those numbers? So just like with pack weight, you could weigh your gear without food or water and have a different pack weight, but what you actually step off into the woods with or into the mountain with, you know, is totally different. People do the same thing with rifles. They talk about a six pound rifle and it's like, oh, well actually with my scope and with ammunition and with a bipod, which I always have on there and with a sling, which I always have on there and with this and that, oh, it actually weighs nine pounds. Um, my rifle weighs nine pounds ready to hunt. All right, well, that covers most of the common questions that came up. If you guys do have other questions that you maybe want me to address in the future um, or just have a question for us in general, it doesn't have to be about this rifle, but just hunting questions, gear questions, strategy technique, something you encountered, maybe on a recent hunt that you're wondering about, go ahead and send those into us and I will get Steve back on here for future Monday Minute episodes back to regularly scheduled programming and we will answer those questions. So to send those in, just send an email to podcast at xomountaingear.com or look for the link in the show description that says leave a message and you can use whatever device you are on to leave us an audio message that we can then include in a future Monday Minute episode to both play and then answer your question. As always, we do appreciate you guys tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, it does help us tremendously if you can leave a rating or review in whatever podcast app you're using or just share the show with your friend. Hopefully you guys are continuing to get out and get out into the mountains this fall. Definitely stay in touch and let us know how it goes with your hunts. We'd love to hear about it. And speaking of hearing from you guys, the before and after series, you guys have heard the before part of those hunts. I'm really excited to share some of the after stories from podcast listeners as well. So Even if you weren't one of the folks that uh, we recorded a quote-unquote before the hunt episode with, but you have a crazy, fun, exciting, or valuable story to consider sharing with listeners from your hunts this fall, 
feel free to reach out and let us know about it. Maybe we'll have you on the podcast as well. Finally, if you haven't yet hit a subscribe or follow in your podcast app, do that so that you receive future episodes automatically, and we'll talk to you soon.